0: I, um, I know that there might be an expectation, given this uh, week that we've had, that the preacher might say something about uh, some sort of a reaction to what's going on in the world. And I personally am not going to do that. I'm not, I don't think it's a good idea uh, at this particular time. I think you'll find your answer to all of life's Serious questions. anything that has to do with spiritual anything, right here in this book. You don't need my opinion. Love each other to Jesus, and uh, He'll help us find our way. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. The, uh, they're going to catch up with the PowerPoint slides. We don't have to play the sound. We've already know, know it. It's my fault they didn't get it in time. I, I had trouble uh, getting it to them in time. But what we're doing this morning, it might be a little bit different for you. It, it might be, so if you just turn the sound down, Jim, there won't be any blast. We'll be fine. But this morning, it might be a little bit different than what you might anticipate, which is kind of cool. It's one of these things that you can be blindsided by sometimes something you don't expect and you need it. And I'm hoping that this is kind of the case for you this morning, as it can be for me oftentimes as I walk through Scripture. So the text is John chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12, and it's Jesus' first miracle. Most of you already know about it. Most of you have read about it. It's a unique thing for us, especially because it is not in the other Gospels. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. It's only in John. And that's kind of cool. So the very first miracle of Jesus appears in John and not in any of the other Gospels. So here we go with the first miracle of story. It's in the first 12 verses, but I'm going to give you a background by fast-forwarding to a text we're going to cover later. You need this. You'll see why in just a minute. Let's read ahead in John chapter 5, starting with, I think it's verse 26. If you go ahead and click that chapter 19 sorry verse 26 when jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to his mother woman behold your son then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her into his own home how do you feel about that takes you back to the cross jesus dying on the cross he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders We just sang the song, I Know You Love Me. I don't know about you, but that gets me choked up sometimes. And here's Jesus with the weight of the world on his shoulders because he loves the world. He loves you and he loves me. And he pauses for a moment and sees his mother, loves her so much that he says to her, woman, behold your son. In other words, John's going to take care of you take care of John. And then he said to John, take care of my mom. Now, these are words that are not exactly the way we would say them, that that are printed in our Bibles, translated from the Koine Greek, which is translated from more than likely the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking at the time, or Hebrew. Um, So, It kind of along the lines, we might lose something. And you hear this phrase when Jesus speaks to someone, even if it's not his mother, and you hear him say, woman, that sounds very abrasive in our culture. But you know this story and you can see what's happening. This is not abrasive. This this is not confrontative. This is not disrespectful in any way. It's just the way it was communicated. It's the way they talked. And when he spoke to his mother, sometimes he addressed her this way, and there is no way in her mind is she thinking, Jesus, you shouldn't talk to me like that. She's feeling loved by him. So don't lose it in the translations. Don't lose it. He is loving his mother. This is a... Just a way that he talks to her and she, he speaks to her affectionately. When he says, woman, it's not derogatory. Now understand our culture, this is not the way we talk to each other. Don't do that. It doesn't feel like it's a, uh, any type of affection. So, so we don't do that. We say it in a different way because we are in a different culture. I just wanted you to wrap your head around this moment. This is a very loving Jesus Nobody doubts the love for his mother. Hang on to that because we've got to back up where we begin today in John chapter 2, verse 1. So let's read that. You'll see it pop up behind me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, I want you to imagine the the scenario that's going on, the way it likely played out. So imagine Jesus sitting down. He's a guest simply at a wedding. He's got his disciples. They're probably hanging out with him. Maybe some others are right there as well. They're engaged in conversation. His mother goes over to him, probably says something rather quietly, not everybody can hear, and this is what she says, they ran out of wine. So he's in his engrossed in his own conversation, she interrupts him. Get that in your head. Now don't lose that while you've got it in your head, but I want you to understand the third day probably means the third day that he decided to journey with his disciples to Galilee. Some Theologians speculate that they couldn't have made this journey in the amount of time given, in three days. But it actually takes about two and a half days to make that journey, which is roughly 70 miles. And so it can be done, and it was done, because they're there. All right, so, uh, and we have about uh, probably six of his disciples that are with him at this point. Now let's move on to verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, if I hadn't shown you that passage in John 19, you might have been taken aback by this statement, Woman, what does this have to do with me? That sounds like a very combative statement. But knowing that this is the same way that Jesus addressed him when he was on the cross, expressing his love, and no one doubted his affection in that statement, he is not doing anything other than making an affectionate address. And he's making a statement that to him seems reasonable at the time. Yes, he is the Lord of the universe. This is Jesus. He never sinned. But in this moment, we get to see something about Jesus that is very special. We get to see Jesus, God in the flesh, and Jesus the man. And you're going to get to see how this plays out. You probably already know the story. But his mother seems to already know. I mean, he says to her, what does this have to do with me? He, I'm having a conversation here. He didn't say that, but he was in the middle of something. And he seems to be caught a little bit off guard. There are other times when Jesus is caught a little bit off guard. There are times like maybe you'll remember on the cross when he says, why have you forsaken me? You see the human side of Jesus coming out. He's feeling the pain. And here we see another human side of Jesus, and we're going to peel that back a little bit and see how that applies to us as we move along. But it's fascinating to me that Mary was moved and she knew. So she told the the servants, do whatever he says. Probably didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but something was going to happen. Okay, we'll move along. <clears throat> now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Your translations say something slightly different if it's not in an English Standard Version. So I have the footnote that'll come up behind me. You'll see it pop up for that, 30 gallons, 20, 30 gallons. So it basically tells you why that's translated that way, because it's taking the Greek word, which means 10 gallons. So if there's two or three of these, or or if there's each holding 20 or 30 gallons, or two times 10 or three times 10, And there's six of them. That's significant. Let's look at one of them would look like something like this. You'll see one pop up behind me. Not the typical jar you think of like a masonry jar. These are giant, much like what Elijah was calling the people to use as they doused the altar he built for the one true God. Holding 20 or 30 gallons, not something that's very easy to pick up. This is a massive amount. And understand there were six of them. So you'll see the other five pop up behind me. That's a massive amount of liquid. I wanted just to bring this to your attention because I have in a commentary that I rely on quite a bit. I love these green commentaries. This is from Paul Thurman Butler, otherwise known as Dr. P.T. Butler, who passed away a few years ago. He's a mentor of mine. And I miss my phone calls that I don't get to have with him anymore. But in here, he tells a story about J.W. McCarvey. Some of you have heard of him. He was an outstanding scholar who had actually at one particular time traveled to the Middle East. He traveled all over the world, and especially in the Middle East, he he wrote many books, but he's quite the scholar. And J.W. McCarvey was taken to the place where the wedding supposedly supposedly took place in Cana of Galilee. And in this place, he was shown by the tour guides... The two jars that were used. And each of these jars were rather small. And so he made a mental note in his own mind, knowing the Greek text himself, those two jars were not used. And it's one of those things that people ask me about the Shroud of Turin or other type of artifacts. Do you think that's real? Do you think it's legitimate? I, I don't know. I think that. God probably limits our ability to have things that we would tend to worship as idols. So a lot of these places that people go and they say, this is actually this, or this is the real place where this happened, ah, maybe. I mean, if they've uncovered artifacts and indicate that this is definitely the city, yeah, there's maybe. But I don't know that we should be getting too caught up in worshiping things because it's about worshiping him. So I don't know that he allows us to discover all of this, but it's a pretty significant event when he tells them to fill all of these uh, jars. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it master of the feast would be the one who's in charge of making sure that everything goes right uh, as it's, that person is, is the ultimate host. He's taking it to the master of the feast. Okay, we'll move on to verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now so not only was this wine special because it was water first it's actually more excellent than typical wine and it's it's better than the best wine that was brought out first That's special. It's very impressive. It it made the wedding feast even better than other wedding feasts because Jesus had placed his hand on part of it. That's pretty cool. Now we'll move on to the next section. Verse 11. This the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. And upon the surface, it almost, when you read this story, and you just walk through it, and you don't take your time and and peel back things, it can almost feel like it lands as a dud. It's almost like... Eh. And that's it? Oh, there's more. So I have three questions. And we're going to take a look at all three of these because they kind of springboard into other things. First of all, why? Isn't that a legitimate question? Why? The whole thing. Just ask questions about each piece of it. Why? And then the second question that we should do is, what can we learn? That makes sense. And then the most glaring obvious question is what shall we do? Why? What can we learn? And what shall we do? So let's go ahead and tackle the why by straight up answering the question. You'll see the next slide come up with the answer as it drops down the sovereignty of God. Now, I read through several opinions about uh, other people's thoughts on. This particular event, And several took it upon themselves to try to answer the question, why? And it seemed to me the universal answer among scholars who actually believe in inspiration and the deity of Jesus, that this is something God wanted to happen. The sovereignty of God, if you want to say it in another way, could easily be said because God willed it to be so. You'll see that pop up behind me as well. That's what the sovereignty of God is. God wants it to happen, so he made it happen. Now, that's a fascinating thing when you think about it, and you start tossing around your head, and you think about Jesus sitting there and engrossed in his own conversation with with his disciples and others, and Mary coming up and saying, hey, they're out of wine. And then Jesus turns to her and says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, yet If this happened because God willed it to be, and of course it did, it was his first miracle. It's inspired in Scripture as his first miracle. This was supposed to happen. That's a fascinating thing. Now I want you to look at John chapter 5. You'll see it come up behind me, and we'll read it. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus does his Father's will. So there is no reason to think otherwise in this particular case. God wanted Jesus to turn the water into wine. And so that is exactly what he did. I'd like to also look over in Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 37, because this gives us a little bit of insight about wine. We'll read this together. You'll see it come up behind me. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good now i left that little footnote up there so that you would know that some manuscripts actually say better or great either way the old wine is the better wine from my perspective I cannot stand the flavor of wine. I've not had any wine that I have enjoyed at all. So I'll take the new that's not fermented at all. Thank you very much. Some of you are the same way. Some of you have had communion that somebody didn't prepare quite well and they left it out on the counter or something. And then the next thing you know, you're drinking it. Whoo! it started to ferment. And I don't want that in my mouth. I don't like it. I, I've had people put wine on a steak and ruin the steak. But apparently for people who like wine... Older is better. So that's what this means. And in this particular text in Luke, the idea is pretty cool. And I wanted to show this to you because when it, in regards to our text, obviously when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was instant. It did not take time to ferment. It was a miracle. Wine does not just turn from juice to wine instantly. And how long would it take water to do that? I mean, my goodness, that's a miracle. This didn't just somehow incidentally happen, and it definitely didn't take time, so it's a miracle. But I also want you to pay attention to this particular text because I think we need to hear it. If you want to, to change the way Jesus wants you to change, you have to, you have to become new. You cannot hang on to your old things, whether it's your old political things, whether it's your old favorite cable news channel things, your social media things, the things your parents taught you, or the things that you just believe in your head when it comes to changing for Jesus and following these directions. You need to be prepared to be stretched. And old wineskins don't stretch catastrophe happens when you try to pour new into them. And Jesus wants to pour new into you, let go of the old and become totally new. That's what this is talking about. So I thought it behooves us to think about that with all the things going on in our world, let go of those ungodly things that we don't even know are ungodly. And it's not hard to figure it out. Whatever this book says is right, no matter what they're saying on the news. No matter what your favorite politician is saying, this book is right. Christians, if you cannot surrender to the will of God as it is spoken in his word, don't call yourself a Christian. Don't let other people tell you how we're supposed to think. Let God tell us how we're supposed to think. You can't get smarter than God. I can't get smarter than God. So let's just go with this. Are you good with it? Is everybody here good with his word just guiding us? I'm, I'm loving that. And I love that you're my church family because I know we're on the same page. So there are some more whys. Let's look at them. You'll see a list that will come up behind me one at a time. Why did God choose to use Jesus' mother to move Jesus in this first miracle? Well, that's a good question. I mean, couldn't he have just tapped Jesus on the shoulder himself and whispered in his ear with nobody knowing that God was whispering in his ear, hey, they need you to make the water into wine right now. This is your moment. He didn't do it. He didn't do that. way. God chose not to do it that way. Instead, he chose to use Mary, the mother of Jesus, to nudge Jesus. Hey, this is it. And Jesus wasn't exactly comfortable with it right when it was happening. So, why did God choose to use Jesus' mother to move Jesus in this first miracle? That's a good question. Let's move on to the next why. Why involve Jesus in a seemingly trivial matter which wasn't his problem? He is not the groom. He is not the father of the groom. He is not the master of the feast. He is not even one of the servants who's supposed to be delivering the wine. This is not his problem. He is a guest at this wedding feast. Weddings don't always go perfectly. This could just be another story. Well, they didn't prepare well, ran out of wine at the This this event that Jesus went to, and then it would have just fizzled. Wouldn't have been in the Bible, nothing special. But why involve Jesus in a seemingly trivial matter, which wasn't his problem? Good question. Let's move on to the next one. Why would Jesus care if the hosts of the wedding or anyone who doesn't prepare well looks bad? Why would he care? I mean, isn't it my problem if I end up with consequences for my own lack of preparation? That's my problem. I look bad. Jesus doesn't look bad. His disciples don't look bad. His mother doesn't look bad. And his brothers that are also there with him, they don't look bad. The people that didn't prepare well look bad, and rightly so. Why does he care? And at first, it almost seems like he doesn't, you know. Like, he doesn't think it's his issue. I know, I didn't answer any of those whys. That's okay. Let's move on to the what can we learn. And you'll see them come up one right after the other, behind me, one at a time. Sometimes God uses others to move people to do his will. Have you seen this? Yeah. Sometimes it's required for that to happen because we, it's, it's a, we, we don't necessarily motivate ourselves. Sometimes other people have to motivate us. Sometimes it happens right here. Did you talk to the new person? You know, you, so that's happened to all of us. Did you talk to them yet? And here we have Jesus right in the smack in the middle of his life story. And actually, it's at the very beginning because this is his first miracle. And, and here he sets an example of this. Even he had to have somebody else say, hmm, excuse me, they're out of wine. I don't think it's by accident that in the very first miracle of Jesus, God chooses to give us a snapshot that sometimes we need a nudge from other people. Even the Messiah needed that. Do you remember when he was in the garden and he was begging God that this cup pass from him three times and he said, but your will be done. He was struggling. And in in this first miracle, it appears he struggled to realize it was upon him. So God used his mother to let him know, this is your moment. This is it. And Sometimes God might use other people to nudge you. Well, let's not just pass up the obvious. Sometimes it's our spouse who knows us so well, who has to say the hard things sometimes. Sometimes it comes from the mouth of a child. Are we supposed to do that? Here's another thing we can learn, the second one. There's five of these, by the way. Sometimes even the best amongst us don't initially realize God is trying to move us through others to do his will. Jesus' initial response was, why are you involving me? But God was using her to do that. This is the savior of the world. And yet his initial response was a little bit resistant to somebody nudging. Do you think we might respond that way sometimes too? When our spouse says something to us that's uncomfortable. Why are you telling me this? (laughs) You think I want to hear that? You think I didn't think this thing through? (laughs) Even Jesus had to be nudged. Third one, what can we learn When Jesus does something, it is marked with excellence. That's just the way he operates. All the way through his whole ministry, this is what we see, and from the very first miracle, he demonstrates it quite well. He didn't just turn it into wine, he turned it into better wine than the best wine they served at the beginning. And he did it instantaneously. This isn't something that can be ignored and be just shrugged off as, oh, it couldn't have been that special. This was very special. And all of the servants knew what was going on. And do you think they talked about it? Of course they talked about it. That's why his disciples became even more strengthened in their belief for him. The fourth thing in What Can We Learn? Jesus cares, even about seemingly trivial, insignificant things. Like I said in that communion song, the second one we sang, I Know You Love Me, it chokes me up, it gets to me, brings tears to my eyes when I think about it, because I don't always act so lovable. But here's an an interesting thing. We all know that he loves us, but don't lose sight of the fact that he cares even about the little, seemingly trivial, insignificant things. Things that don't seem to matter so much. I mean, in a wedding, yeah, the wine, you're supposed to have the fine wine and then the lesser wine. And at the end, if you run out, obviously there's plenty of water. They could have said, we've run out of wine. Sorry, we've got plenty of water. People would have adjusted. People would have been okay. But still... There are people that would have been humiliated, the people who didn't plan well. And Jesus cared. Cared enough to make sure it's okay. And when you're going through these things that may not seem that big a deal, in fact, you might not even want to share in a prayer request. just, Just pray for me. You might say it that way because you've got these things and you think they're no big deal. You think that you don't want to burden other people with the details of your prayer requests. It's not that big a deal, this little thing that you're, that's bothering you right now. Jesus cares. He demonstrated that in this story. He cared about something that really doesn't matter that much. But he cares. And the fifth and final thing on what can we learn, and I'm sure there's more that you could come up with, Inviting Jesus to your private events can come with great blessings. Okay, so now let's move on to what shall we do. And we've got just a few of these here. We'll go through them also one at a time. First of all, pay attention to when God wants others to move us. And when he wants us to move others and move. There are times when, now we've already talked about sometimes we have to pay attention, other people are moving us. There's times when we need to step out of our comfort zone and try to nudge somebody else. And it might be met with a combative statement <laughs> Why are you telling me this? Why are you involving me? What does this have to do with me? But if God's moving you to do that, then move. Don't ignore it. If God's choosing to nudge you, to nudge somebody else, you should do that. Great things can happen, if you will. Second thing in What Shall We Do? Let Jesus mark our lives with excellence. I love hearing the stories that some of you have even shared with me, some of your stories where you just try to be the best you can be for Jesus, whether it's school, neighborhood, workplace, family. And because of your choice to do things with excellence, because that pleases Jesus, others see Jesus in you. And then God moves people. So let Jesus mark our lives with excellence. The third thing. Hand even the little things over to Jesus, knowing he cares. Might not see him like that big of a deal, but it bothers you. Why not hand that to him? Why, why, not, why not just hand it over to the creator of the universe who can do a miracle like turning water into wine? He can handle handling your stress. So hand it to him. And the fourth and final thing on what shall we do? Invite and welcome Jesus to every public and private thing in our lives, knowing this blesses him, others, and us. Just invite him right into the middle of all of it. He cares. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for how you teach us through your word and something as simple as this first miracle that we all know about, we've all read about. You just reach right in there and grab a hold of us. You pull us closer. You teach us. You motivate us. You you nudge us. Thank you for showing us not just the lordship of Jesus, but the humanness of Jesus. May we be more like him. May you be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.